Hey guys, it's Abdul for the good folks over at Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown Indianapolis. It may be cold outside, but Leon Tailoring keep you nice and warm without burning a hole in your pocket. That's right, if you need a nice new coat or maybe need a sweater or a heavier jacket or heavier blouse, no matter what it is, Leon Tailoring, Larry, Norm, Kim, and Judy can take care of you this winter season. So, like I said, it's the Midwest, it's cold outside, but Leon Tailoring always keep you nice and warm and comfortable, and once again, without burning holes in any of your pockets. So swing on by Leon Tailoring. I know they'd be happy to see you. Leon Tailoring, 809 North Delaware, downtown in Indianapolis. Well, as you folks know, education is the biggest part of the state budget. More than half of the state's budget money that it collects from taxpayers goes to schools and education. So, if you want to talk about that and uh, what they would like to see done with schools this session, is our good friend Betsy Wiley uh, with the Institute of Quality Education. Uh, Betsy, my dear, thank you very much for being with us. Always good to chat with you. Thanks for having me. Always great to talk with you. Not a worry. Uh, so, what do you? How would you folks rate uh, how Indiana schools are doing right now in the, here in the state of Indiana? You know, I think we're doing okay, um, but there's considerable room for improvement. A lot of the legislation out there this year um, addresses that, um, particularly Secretary Jenner and her focus on literacy and the science of reading, I think is very important. Um, We know that um, roughly one in five of our students can't read, and that's just wholly unacceptable. Um, and so we have to address that quickly. So I'm glad to see her leadership um, in that area. And, you know, we're even our best schools aren't doing good enough right now in order to um, prepare our students for success beyond high school. So so plenty of room for improvement. And it's interesting you bring that up because I know uh, on, on the business side of things, a lot of folks talk about workforce development. Uh, there, there are more un- more jobs and there are people actually looking for them. But Hoosiers just don't have the skills uh, to, to, to get some of those high-quality, high-paying, particularly those high-tech jobs uh, that, uh, that the state of Indiana has been announcing sort of in droves over the past few years. How, how do we fix that? Because obviously it, it's not like you can you know do a correspondence course in a month, have your degree. Yeah, great question. And I think um, Speaker Houston and the House Republicans and House Bill 1002, I believe it is, um, where they are reimagining high school, I believe is what they're calling it, um, have a great suggestion in there uh, where they basically do uh, career savings accounts and put um, career technical education dollars in the hands of students and families so they can customize and get those work-based learning opportunities, quality work-based learning opportunities in their sophomore, junior, and senior years in high school. Um, And I think those practical experiences could really pay off. Um, That legislation is going through the process right now. It it really focuses on students getting high-quality credentials um, and having those quality work-based experiences, which I think will go a long, long way to um, helping get train our students into becoming that workforce that our employers are looking for. Yeah, because I always thought it was interesting because a lot of folks talk about K through twelve education when these days it's more like K through fourteen. Yes, at, at least. Um, you know, I think people are really sort of looking from that, um, you know, birth to adulthood uh, continuum of learning and um, wanting to make sure that. You know, the the high school diploma that once maybe was able to provide us, um, each of us, a a decent living is is not cutting it anymore, right? It's not keeping up with the times and the demands of the employer. And so doing these work-based learning opportunities, allowing that freedom and flexibility 
um, that House Bill 1002 does, I think will help get both the um, hard skills and the soft skills that many of our employers are looking for. And it's funny you bring that up because I remember, oh gosh, just like years ago, uh, just flipping the channels and came across C-SPAN 3 to show you guys what a big dork I am on Sunday nights. And it was a, <laughs> and it was a presidential debate between John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, the, the, the guy from Minnesota uh, who was later LBJ's vice president. And they were talking about education and how Americans, and you get this, Betsy, needed to get a high school diploma because a high school diploma was crucial for success uh, in the future. And that was almost you know, 60 years ago. You know, fast forward 63 years, we're still having that debate. We just basically moved the goalpost from high school you know, to post-secondary. We did. I think another debate that you're seeing, right, is the value of the high school diploma. Um, there's been some discussion out there about grad rates. And this is another indicator that we're not doing what we need to do to prepare our young people for successful futures. You know, we, uh, Washington Township, for example, has been putting stuff out touting a 90% grad rate. Well, that includes waivers. And when you take, when you get rid of that, you know, it, it drops significantly. In fact, it drops to 76%, I think. And so, um, and for our black students, um, even further, it drops to like 67% one of the worst in the state, actually. And so what are we doing? How are we being helpful by kind of telling these people, um, here's your graduation credential, but you really don't have the skills. And then they're going off to try and do the next thing and likely unsuccessful in doing it, whether that be post-secondary education or the workplace, um, because we didn't prepare them but we moved them on anyway. So there's a lot of discussion around that as well. Our guest in the room today is Betsy Wiley. Betsy is with the uh, Institute for Quality Education. Uh, they are a big uh, believer in education and school choice here in the state of Indiana. So we're talking about sort of the state of Indiana and school choice here uh, in Indiana and how things are going. Uh, Betsy, one of the other things, too, is uh, sort of uh, the, the concept of universal choice. So whether someone goes to a public school, traditional public school, charter, private, religious, or homeschool, uh, the parents can make that decision with universal choice. Uh, Where's where the Institute on Universal Choice, and what do you think is going to happen this year? Yeah, well, the Institute for Quality Education is uh, all in for universal choice, as we have been um, since we started, oh gosh, over 20 years ago. And so, um, you know, we feel very positive that Indiana will make, will reach universal choice in, in one or more ways this session. Um, you know, this is a concept, this is a phenomenon that's sweeping the nation. You're seeing all kinds of states pass universal education savings accounts programs. Arizona, Iowa did it this week, West Virginia. Um, I think Oklahoma and Texas are looking at it as well. We are too, right? Has Senate Bill 305 has a universal ESA component to it. I think there'll be pushes to make the voucher program um, universal. And, and what do we mean by that, right? We simply mean that every student from every family, regardless of any factor, income, um, you know, where they live, you know, zip code, what have you, can access any school that they want. Um, and if that means a private school by chance, then they would be able to utilize some tax dollars in a scholarship form like the voucher program or the education savings account program to do so. And it's, and it's interesting because uh, the one thing, one of the arguments I keep hearing is that choice, you know, takes money away from traditional public schools. Like, well, 
technically yes but also they have they also have fewer students at the same time because you, you if you assume the money follows the student if the student goes to school a they're supposed to school b then yes school a loses money but school a also loses the student so that's less work you have to do i've, I've never understood that that argument in particular no neither have i um and quite honestly when you look at it um from the from an economy and mathematical standpoint, I don't get it, right? So if someone, if a student were to choose to participate in the voucher program today, uh, they could receive up to 90% of their state tuition support. That other 10% stays in, in the funding formula and goes to our traditional public schools. So there's that piece that the traditional public school is receiving, again, to your point, for a child that they are no longer educating. In addition to that, None of our private school students or our charter school students receive any local funding from property taxes for their education. On average in the state, that's $4,000. In Indianapolis, that's $7,000. And if the proposed referendums uh, that IPS is suggesting were to pass, that could go above $10,000 per student in terms of differential in funding, where IPS in that case would be keeping that money but not educating that student. Our guest on the program today is Betsy Wiley. Betley, Betsy is the head of the Institute for Quality Education. They're an education group here in the state of Indiana. So we're talking about education here in the state. Uh, Betsy, uh, another uh, question I had about uh, sort, of, sort, of the, sort of the voucher program and, and the transfer back and forth. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the biggest, quote, unquote, poacher of traditional public schools other traditional public schools? Yes, it is. I don't know if I'd say poacher, but it's certainly the largest form of school choice in Indiana. Uh, we have more than 80,000 students that live in one public school district and choose to go to school in another public school district. And we think that's great, right? We're, we are agnostic on school type. We want to make sure that students are able to receive their education in the best learning environment for them. And to your point, when that happens in terms of funding, their state dollars follow those kids, but again, those local dollars do not. And so a school corporation um, that might lose a student to another school corporation gets to keep those local property tax dollars for that child. So um, really fascinating stuff. I think there are a couple bills out there that even talk about having those local dollars follow that kid. Um, and so we'll be looking at those because I think that's a more equitable way to, to fund our students' education. Uh, Betsy, another question that, that I had for you is, uh, is the issue of, uh, of teacher pay, because obviously that was a big deal right before the pandemic. We had lots of folks come down here in red uh, and protest and, and, and make their voices heard. Uh, where are you folks with teacher pay? Is that, a, is that a state issue? Is that a local issue? We view it to be much more of a local issue. I will say that I do think the legislature um, and Governor Holcomb a few years ago with his teacher pay commission have put a focus on it that has really made locals step up to the plate and make this determine, you know, really kind of attack this issue. Um, but it's, a, it's an issue of local control. When you ask teachers and even the teachers unions, would you like the state to set a, a pay scale for all teachers? No, of course not. Right. They want that local control. And I think it's where it should be. And teachers and school superintendents ought to be able to determine um, the salary of their teachers. They ought to be able to pay teachers that they view to be of greater value more, be that in STEM, be that in special ed, um, be that in whatever shortage area they might have. So 100% in our belief, a local control issue. And, and Central too, because you bring that up, because I remember uh, having those debates and discussions, and I always tell people, uh, look, look, guys, 
the, the fundamental uh, issue of how a teacher gets paid comes from the teachers, the unions, and the, and the contracts they negotiate. You know, that's it. If you want more money, I, I don't I don't see how the state gets in the middle of all that. When, when to me, it's a local issue between teachers, the unions, and the and the school boards and the contracts that they pay. Right. You know, one thing uh, that that could happen and that we would love to see happen, um, right, is potentially allowing school allowing school teachers and and school corporations to be able to negotiate teacher salaries outside the collective bargaining agreement. Um, We do think that that would allow corporations that flexibility that I just talked to about paying some of those teachers in high value areas more, Um, you know, as we do sort of in any industry, right? The, um, you know, the CEOs and your managers are determining the salaries of, of various people within the corporation. And so we think a very similar model um, would make a lot of sense in, in, in education as well. Uh, Bess, we've got a few minutes left here. I want to uh, get your thoughts on this. Uh, one of the things I keep hearing uh, from the opponents of choice is that charter schools, you know, the, 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 the data shows that charter schools really don't outperform uh, their traditional public school counterparts. And if a charter school... If I, if, so let, let me get your thoughts. Have, have you seen these studies? What's going on there? Yeah, so I would say um, entirely false in that statement. Um, Indiana's charter schools, of which there are about 120 plus, um, outperform their um, comparable district public school. So what do I mean by that? I mean all of the charter schools and the charter school students in Indianapolis and Marion County outperform IPS. And this is particularly true when you disaggregate the data and particularly true for black students uh, and Hispanic students and students um, that are English language learners. And so um, I think a lot of times what you see in that data is uh, the inclusion of um, adult high school students, which by definition as adults, can't graduate on time, so they bring down the graduation rate. So if you exclude that, um, you will find that that charter schools overwhelmingly um, perform better than the district public school that is comparable to them. Um, And this is something that we're going to be attacking again this year. We're proud to be part of the Indiana Student Funding Alliance to try and receive equitable funding for our charter students. And, and it's interesting you bring that up because I know one of the things too is that usually when a when a kid from a uh, a traditional public school goes to a charter, they start out usually a couple years behind, but by the time they're finished and completed their education, uh, they're ahead of their traditional public school counterparts. Yes, uh, absolutely true. So when you look at the data for charter school students, and again, particularly for uh, minority students, um, you see that they outperform the districts both in growth and in proficiency. And that growth piece is what you're talking about. They're coming in behind, but they are growing more each and every year that they're at that charter school than their peer is who's stuck in that traditional public school environment. So charter schools are doing a great job um, in the areas in which we have them. 50% of our charter school kids are right here in Indianapolis. And again, they're being funded dramatically um, are dramatically underfunded to the tune of $7,000 per person less. And so we'll be seeking to uh, help them get fair funding to continue that education. Betsy Wallace, Institute for Quality Education, with us for a few more minutes on the program today. Betsy, uh, teacher shortages, uh, any idea on how to solve our teacher shortage issue? Yeah, I think it's a real, it's a real concern. It's a real issue. There's not a quick fix. And um, there was 
some legislation last year that we supported for adjunct teachers, which would just simply allow a professional um, who is not a teacher, if a school corporation chose to have, um, let's say you, Abdul, as an attorney, come take come teach a, a introductory to law class, they could do that. Um, that's not that's a that's a band aid, not a long term fix. We need to continue to encourage individuals to join the profession. And I think we do that going back to some of the things we talked about in terms of compensation. The other thing I think that we need to do is really focus on making sure that administrators are supportive of their teachers. We hear that a lot from teachers is I don't feel the support in the classroom. And then finally, I would just say, you know, teachers are professionals and should be treated as such. And so that goes into sort of that allow them the freedom and flexibility to negotiate their own salary, to manage their own classroom, to pro- provide and maintain discipline in the classroom. And it, and I think we'll see more and more uh, wanting to join the profession. Uh, final question for you, Betsy. Uh, any thoughts or ideas on making school board elections partisan? You know, I don't have a ton of thoughts. I've seen it out there. I don't think for many it's the silver bullet that people think it is. Do I think listing a political party behind your name may give someone an indication on some high level as to what type of where you're where you are philosophically regarding education? Sure. But as we all know, there's a continuum of philosophy and philosophical thought in the Republican Party as there is in the Democrat Party. I'm not sure that it's the the silver bullet that everyone thinks it's going to be. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground with education law today and what uh, law, Lindy and lawmakers do with our good friend Betsy Wiley, the Institute for Quality Education. Uh, Betsy, my dear, thank you very, very much for being with us. Always great to talk to you. And my spider sense says we'll probably be talking again real soon. I hope so. Thanks for having me. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.